you know, there's a concept from some, you know, business school class of the trust equation, uh, you know, which is um, credibility plus reliability plus authenticity divided by perception of self-interest. And so we need leaders who are thinking about like, how do I lower my perception of self-interest here? How do I improve my credibility? Are my ideas sound? How do I improve my reliability? Do I do what I say I'm going to do? And how do I improve my authenticity? Uh, can you believe what I'm saying? And so I think, you know, those sorts of uh, pieces of the trust equation, I think are an important part of how we, um, you know, meet, find and create leaders for the future. Uh, leaders who can play that whole, um, you know, symphony of, um, of the components of trust. You are listening to The Real Leaders Podcast, your number one source for impact leaders harnessing capitalism to sustain the planet, people, and profits. I'm your host, Kevin Edwards, and that message came from Tom Matsey, the founder and CEO of Clean Choice Energy, who breaks down today the components of trust. And on today's episode, I asked Tom why he decided to start a solar company. How do we green the grid and what trust is needed to sustain a movement? So without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, let's give it up for the real Tom Matzi. Enjoy. We will go live in five, four, three, two, and one. And welcome everyone to this episode of the Real Leaders Podcast. I'm your host, Kevin Edwards. Joining us today is the founder, president, CEO of Clean Choice Energy, Mr. Tom Matsey. Tom, thanks for being with us today. Thanks for having me. Absolutely, Tom. All right. Well, I got a question for you. We're going to be talking about some clean energy today. Maybe we can go back into some history on this thing. Uh, But when did you hop aboard the solar train? Sure. And it's actually really a big part of the founding story of the company. Um, you know, I had uh, a prior career, you know, I'm the CEO of this energy company now, but my prior career, uh, I actually, I worked in, um, uh, you know, uh, democratic politics and I left that after president Obama was elected. Uh, and I was uh, going solar on my home in Washington, DC, putting, you know, solar panels, uh, on my home. And I decided that I was really excited about that. I had a couple of different reasons I wanted to do it. One, I certainly care a lot about climate change. It's one of the most important issues to me. And anything we can do to reduce usage of fossil fuels is uh, good for fighting climate change. And also, I had grown up in uh, Western Pennsylvania, uh, outside Pittsburgh, you know, outside Pittsburgh, and I'd seen the impact of you know dirty energy on uh, those communities, um, including you know my father's hometown. My father had died from you know a form of cancer that was closely connected to the pollution in his is the town he grew up in his, his town. Um, so I had a lot of motivation to move away from dirty energy. Uh, but in the process of putting solar in my home, which I encourage everyone to try to do, it's fantastic having solar on your home. Uh, I just, I realized that there are some people who are not going to be able to do it because maybe they didn't live in a single family home. Maybe they lived in an apartment. Maybe they didn't own their home. Maybe it was owned by their landlord or maybe they had the wrong roof type or their home was oriented in the wrong direction or was shaded by trees. There are a lot of reasons that people were not going to be able to go solar. And um, from that insight, I, I realized there was an opportunity to create a company that would make renewable energy a service that you could uh, pay through your utility bill rather than a home improvement project. 
Hmm. Uh, and that's really the genesis of, of the company was trying to make renewable energy easier for consumers and seeing that opportunity that having that vision for, you know, if uh, you made it easier that many people could participate and that would have uh, great benefits. Uh, so that's really the spark to start story of the company has kind of started as a personal interest and then said, well, maybe I'll build a company that does this. And Tom, how old is the company and, and what was the uh, competitive landscape like at this time? Uh, we started the company you know, in 2011, but really our first revenue dollar was in April of 2013. Um, and from there, you know, so we're you know, basically seven years old last month. Um, uh, you know, there were a couple of players at that time. There's a couple more players now. Uh, consumers have lots of, you know, lots more energy choice than they've ever had at any point, you know, in uh, kind of U.S. history. Uh, and that's, you know, through rooftop solar, through a company like ours, through community solar, wind energy product. We offer an offset product that you could buy from us or other companies, uh, as well as energy efficiency choices, hardware for your home. It, it's really an interesting moment if you think about where, you know, utilities and energy, you know, were a couple of decades ago and where they are today and what sort of choices that consumers have. So, Tom, you say you were in some, a little, little bit politic and early on. So explain to me, when, when you were putting that solar panel on your own roof, did you see yourself running a company at that point in time? And kind of explain that process to, uh, to the audience out there. Yeah, no, I didn't. I mean, so first, I want to be clear. I wasn't climbing on the roof myself. Uh, I worked for a great company. They, and they'd done a great job. But yeah, I, uh, in watching them do it, I don't think I quite had the idea yet. It was something that germinated after that. Um, and I, I certainly never thought I would be running, you know, an energy company the size that, you know, we are today. Um, but um, I did have a vision in my head where I saw what the future could be like if there was something similar, you know, simpler for a consumer to do that if you could make these choices easier and with the same impact, right? That's a very important piece of it is to, you know, have uh, be authentic and credible to your customer by having, you know, making sure their dollar uh, supports the impact that they are trying to make. What were your friends, your family members, your, your coworkers telling you at the time when you were, when you're trying to explain this vision to them? That's an interesting question. Uh, <laughs> so I had, uh, I'd only been married for a few years. And um, I think when I founded the company, uh, my first daughter was uh, maybe six months old. So um, there was definitely a level of risk involved. Oh, yeah. Um, but, uh, you know, I think the people, I, you know, I'd, I'd taken a lot of risks in my t when I was worked in uh, politics. And there was kind of something people who knew me were accustomed to seeing me do. Um, and, and actually, I think that I, got, uh, I would not have been able to start the company without all the support from uh, friends and family, that's for sure. Uh, that, um, you know, immediately people I went and asked to become investors, uh, they were very supportive and not, both because they liked the idea and they were supporting me. Now, when people think about clean energy, uh, a lot of people may have a misconception of it, that it, it only works when the sun's out, uh, it's inefficient, it costs more. Maybe explain the economics. When we're talking about a choice that a consumer makes, why is it more economically viable 
to have solar energy, wind energy that powers your home? Yeah. So what's been amazing about um, the renewable energy has been that over the last 10 years, we've seen a rapid decline in the cost of uh, new renewable energy uh, relative and compared to uh, new alternative other sources of energy like um, uh, natural gas or coal. Uh, and I think that has largely been driven because there's no fuel costs associated with you know, solar or wind. It's a tech, so it's technology. And there are, as, as we know from like uh, the evolution of uh, personal computing and, and smartphones, um, you know, you can get more uh, productivity and capacity capability from a piece of technology over time, you know, as the expertise around that technology uh, from, you know, the inventors and manufacturers gets better and better. Uh, and so that's one of the big advantages that we've seen is that as, um, you know, deployments of um, renewable energy have increased, that the cost uh, curve has continued to decline. And I should say that that has been also in the face of declining um, uh, prices for you know one of the competitor sources of energy like natural gas, and so um, you know that's part of it. Now there's ability by market, um, and so in some markets that we operate in, in particular in the like northeast part of the United States, um, there's very old, uh, fully amortized uh, traditional electric generation that is still cost competitive. Um, and so there are different, you know, experiences people have in different markets, whereas like the Southwest or Texas, uh, Southern California, solar, new solar is definitively the, the most cost competitive option now. Um, I should say also, we're seeing similar trends in the decline in prices of batteries for energy storage. Mm. And, and there are exciting new uh, battery storage projects uh, that are being built in, in California and elsewhere. Uh, that will make and really extend the uh, capability of uh, solar wind generation even farther. Um, and I think it's it's really just a it's a misperception people have had uh, about the kind of variability of these resources. Solar is incredibly predictable. We have thousands of years <laughs> of information about when the sun comes up and when it goes down. Uh, the variability is in you know cloud cover. And that's very predictable in how the solar will will uh, behave in you know cloud cover, and of course you need diversity of types of uh, renewable generation uh, to cover overnight or in times when the resource is not as abundant. So that includes storage, that includes wind power. It's windy somewhere at all times of the day, um, and there are certain places where it's windy a lot, like offshore or near coasts, uh, mountain ridges. Um, and there's other forms of technology also, hydroelectricity uh, as another example. Well, you're mentioning uh, you know, why solar energy or renewable energy is now a great economic decision, especially for those, those states where we do have a, a good track history of when the sun comes up and down, especially in the great state of Arizona where I lived for a few years. Um, I just want to make sure our audience is aware of the history of energy and kind of how how this all came to be in the first place, uh, starting with, uh, you know, we had uh, not it was a gas powered or steam steam engines first. I think steam engines were first. And we had steam engine furnaces that were basically powered by coal. Um, and it, I think petroleum at the time was just used as like a medicine. Just they would come to your door, they'd sell it to you. 
and it really didn't have any other purpose until the combustion engine came to be. Uh, with, that was with Henry Ford. He perfected the assembly line and then brought the cost down of these vehicles. And the cost of petroleum, which makes gasoline, was very cheap and efficient. Um, and those, these cars, I think actually, Tom, at the same time, there was an electric car. Uh, it was um, a, a horseless buggy, I think they called it. It was for upscale you know, females who didn't want to crank to start this combustion engine. It was just too, too noisy, too energy uh, intensive but these combustion engines would just they they could outperform any electric vehicle so it just took over the economic incentive to have the gas powered car was just much more viable and then we went to world war ii and we had this uh you know the peaceful atom bomb that uh that we decided to develop all these uh nuclear plants and then we stopped them and i think you had mentioned earlier your father or, or someone in your family may have been affected by something like that. So we stopped that energy connection. But the question is now is we've got to this point, we've gone through the energy crisis, the Jimmy car, we've got to this point where of almost no return, where everyone has a vehicle that's powered by gas. Um, what is the vision going forward? How do you see this changing? And what are the impact of electric vehicles on the solar industry right now? Yeah, there's going to be a massive transformation over the next few decades of both how we uh, generate and use electricity as well as um, how transportation is powered. Um, I think the uh, electricity sector, you know, when the thing, the thing comes out of your wall plug that, you know, powers your computer, your air conditioner, your, you know, cell phone charging, that is essentially on a couple decade long transformation that is inevitable now. Uh, because the cost curve has been passed, and you know the there is going to be a deploy, you know, continuous deployment of renewable energy over the next few decades. Um, but you know, for example, in Texas, you know, the headquarters of the oil industry in the United States, there is more solar energy under development than there are existing power plants that are operating today. So that tell, that gives you a sense of you know how things are going to transform in a place like Texas. Now, transportation's uh, a different challenge, and we have a, a few different paths towards uh, that sort of transformation. Uh, the most obvious is going to be electrification of transportation. Um, I drive an electric car. It's amazing. It's far better than my uh, gasoline car, the last one I drove, and I had a very nice gasoline car. Um, and I think consumers, once they switch to an electric car, are not going to want to go back to gasoline. And you know, there's a couple of advantages. One, they're great performing cars. Two, and I think this one is is not uh, fully appreciated. If you have an electric car, you never have to go to a gas station again, which I think if you had to imagine a bad customer experience, maybe the worst customer experience possible, it might be to ask somebody to go to a gas station, stand outside, uh, exposed to the elements in you know in the northeast or the midwest like in the freezing cold um or you know uh, in the middle of nowhere and uh touch this equipment that's covered in chemicals and smells you know terribly in order to fuel your vehicle um and like that's a terrible customer experience why if you were designing a product would you put going to a gas station into your product design um well that's one of the benefits of an electric car you never have to go to a gas station again and people get worried about like the range and where they'll be able to recharge it, things like that. 
and, and really these are uh, first time car, uh, you know, electric car owner challenges. Once you've gone over that hump and you own an electric car, you realize most of the time your car is going to recharge at home just the same way you'd recharge your cell phone every night. And most of the time, you're never going to take trips that consume the whole battery uh, and have to get recharged on the road. Um, and uh, that's a huge, tremendous benefit. Um, that's not a um, that's not a, a downside. That's an upside. Uh, and then when you do need to take those longer trips, there is now pretty good electric charging infrastructure across most of the United States, and certainly along the major interstates. And finally. The, the piece that I think is really misunderstood about charging an electric vehicle is that there is ubiquitous electric vehicle charging. Any wall plug can charge an electric vehicle. You just might do it slower than a, a dedicated charging station would do it. Um, and when you think about how many gas stations there are compared to like wall plugs where you could charge in your car, you can start to see the advantages. You could, you know, if you were going to a cabin out in the mountains, and you took your electric car and you got to that destination, you could plug in your car there and over the weekend it would recharge. Um, so I think that transformation is going to happen. And essentially it's green, the grid, green, the electric grid, and then electrify everything. And so then as you electrify everything, that, that power, that fuel source becomes uh, greener. Okay. So let's talk about the grid. You just mentioned the grid. Um, Clean Choice Energy has community solar projects. Now, this is mm -hmm. in the Northeast right now, and I am on Minnesota. The, yeah, it's in the Minnesota. You're on the West Coast. I'm in the West Coast. We don't have these community solar. Actually, to my knowledge, Clean Choice Energy is not out here. We may have some community That's solar true. projects, but I'm not entirely sure. Explain to our audience what a community solar project is and how we can green the grid. Yeah. So uh, you're right that there are certain parts of the country that have these benefits and others don't. And that's because, uh, you know, the regulation of the electric grid and electricity is state by state. And even then, sometimes it gets even more narrow by utility geographic territory. And there are hundreds, if not thousands of these you know territories. And so putting together national offerings for consumers becomes a challenge. Um, in the markets where they have community solar, the state has decided to make it possible for consumers to subscribe to a solar project and get the same benefits from that solar project as if it was on their roof. That's a short. That's the short description of it. It's obviously a little more technically complicated. Um, and the um, uh, the way that works is a first a developer a company like Clean Choice Energy. We'll go talk to a farmland owner. We'll sign an agreement with the farmland owner for them to provide us a lease to use part of their farmland to build a solar project on. We'll go through the process of developing the solar project, the studying the land, the studying the proximity to the power grid, uh, studying you know the feasibility of uh, that project on that piece of land, and then we will, um, assuming everything gets checked out and approved, and there's an allocation approved by the state. Uh, we will sign customers up to uh, subscribe to that solar farm, and we will then build it uh, for that group of three or four hundred customers. And they, uh, their charges, um, you know, they still pay their utility bill. There's then a credit applied to the utility bill, so the utility bill will go down, you know, very significantly. And then they also pay a charge to us 
which should be lower than the credit that they're getting on their bill. So they're getting a net savings. Mm. And, um, you know, there's, there's seasonality to that it generates more in the summer and uh, you use more in the summer too, but you also use more in the winter often uh, for heat. Uh, but that's the basics of the, how community solar works. It also has a few other advantages. Uh, one, it's portable. So if you change homes, you can take your community solar subscription with you. It makes it accessible to people who have apartments or don't own their home, unlike that rooftop solar experience I told you about earlier. And um, it also makes it easier to provide it as a benefit to uh, customers who would otherwise be disqualified because of their credit or their income. Um, and that's because if they fail to make payment, you can move the subscription to somebody else. Right. And so that's um, an additional benefit of uh, community solar. So the financing for this, how long yeah. will it take me as a subscriber to make back my money? There's no upfront payment, right? So you just pay as you go. So let's say if you um, use a, you know, we, we measure electricity in kilowatt hours. If you use a thousand kilowatt hours a month, you know, we might provide you a uh, thousand kilowatt hours of uh, solar credits for that month. Uh, and uh, you just pay for that month at that time. There's no upfront payment. And so it means that month one is immediately in the money for the customer. They're immediately uh, realizing savings on their on their bill. Tom, you mentioned that you, you had an interest in politics before. Now you're in uh, a region of the country, two regions of the country that have great probably some good incentives to have these community solar farms. How important are these municipalities in these areas? Uh, and what is the leadership needed from these government officials? Yeah, well, um, leadership is needed at every level of our government. Uh, you know, energy development, energy, renewable energy is a form of economic development that creates jobs. And the state where I live, I'm in Bethesda, Maryland, uh, our company's headquartered in Washington, D.C. There are more people in Maryland that work for the solar industry than work for the utilities in the states, in the state, all the utilities in the state combined. And so because this is a form of economic development, uh, we want to make sure there aren't barriers to uh, developing solar as well as, uh, you know, creating those jobs. And so that's where we ask for leadership from state government, county government, municipal government, and making sure that there is a way to make that market happen so that entrepreneurs, my company or others, can go and uh, you know facilitate that economic development and job creation. And I think that's the, that's the important piece to understand. And especially in this crisis you are in now, uh, you know, the economic crisis related to the COVID-19, uh, as we come out of this crisis, we're going to need ideas for economic development and job creation. And at the same time, our state and local governments are going to be essentially broke. They will not have the money they need for other types of economic development. The good news is that clean energy, renewable energy, other clean technologies do not need uh, cash payments from the government in order to do, you know, uh, create economic development. We have ways of financing our projects without the government. What we need is a kind of well-organized marketplace so that there aren't barriers put in place by the utilities or there, there aren't uh, utility tariffs that prohibit us from serving customers. And so that's just a rearranging of the regulatory structure. It's not uh, about using cash money from the treasuries of the state local governments or the federal government. 
So let's let's stay on that topic really quick, Tom. So you're saying traditional utilities uh, do need government assistance? Not government assistance, regulation. You know, most utilities are are um, monopolies that have been mandated by the government. So the government says that you can't go put up your own electric poles. That if you want to use the you know electric poles, there's a company you pay to use the electric pole, and that's the electric mm-hmm. utility. And they have other similar monopolies in place for whether or not you have a power plant like a solar farm and whether or not your power plant can connect to the electric grid. Um, now, I don't want to get too deep into the esoterics of you know utility regulation, um, uh, but suffice to say, what you want is a set of rules where um, a company that's creating jobs can connect to the utility's wires and sell its clean energy to customers who are also connected to those wires. Mm. And that's the short way to describe the change in regulation that's needed in order to support this form of job creation. So job creation for clean energy right now is where with COVID-19 has it been impacted a lot? And how do you see the industry responding after this? Um, There are definitely. So first thing is we went into this crisis as one of the most important job creating sectors in the economy. It's the fast, it was the fast, you know, solar, solar installer and uh, wind turbine technician were two of the fastest growing job categories in the United States. Um, definitively certain parts of that industry have ground to full stop, uh, rooftop in certain parts of the country, rooftop solar is not considered essential. And, and further, some consumers are, you know, not wanting to buy rooftop solar right now and other places where you might need to uh, do public meetings for permitting, et cetera, that activity is not happening. Uh, and so there are, um, I think the unemployment, you know, data reports that there are hundreds of thousands of workers in the renewable energy space who are currently out of work. And I certainly know, um, companies who are more in the construction side of solar were not, um, but those companies are experiencing a lot of difficulty right now and have had to furlough their workforces um, as early as you know mid-March um, or face immediate bankruptcy. And so uh, it's going to be important to, yes, get back, get those workforces mobilized again and back to work. Um, but we also will need um, to think about how all those other people who have been hurt in the economy and parts of the economy that will not recover quickly. You know, I don't expect that we're going to see a fast recovery in travel related or hospitality related industries or dining and restaurants. Those, some of those jobs are going to be gone for a few years. Um, And so we need to create new jobs and new ways to employ people. Uh, And that's where I think the renewable energy industry can definitely contribute and contribute soon. Right, because a lot of those costs are utility based, right? Especially for small business owners with leases, things like that. Yeah, but also, um, you know, uh, everyone always buys electricity. It's one; it's an essential good. And so, if you can change the way that activity is organized, and so that you can create jobs, you know, change the regulations so that new jobs can be created, um, it definitely um, is a way that the renewable energy industry can contribute to the economic recovery that's to come. Tom, let's bring this back to clean choice. It's early March. The United States announces that uh, we are in a global pandemic. What went through your mind? And then what was your first message to some of your key 
managers and executives? Yeah, I mean, I remember very clearly first week of March, you know, uh, asking two of my uh, executives to immediately put our plan in place for uh, moving the team to a remote work environment. And uh, we did a dress rehearsal uh, with our whole company moving to uh, remote work so that we could know if people had the right equipment, if did they have a camera that worked on their computer, you know, did they uh, have a place to work at home, things like that. And then just a few days after that, we moved the whole team to 100% remote work. Um, and um, we have a New York City office that had moved to, to remote work a week earlier. So, um, you know, the combination, you know, those two things, the number one thing I was thinking about, you know, was our team's safety. And, um, you know, that was warranted since uh, the office buildings where our team, um, our teams were located and some of their apartment buildings, et cetera, definitely had, you know, infected persons in those uh, buildings. Um, and so um, that was, you know, number one, uh, both for the sake of their safety, but also for the the safety of the company, which is so essential to their, uh, you know, employment and their healthcare and, you know, the safety of their families. Um, but, uh, so safety was the first uh, thing I was thinking about. And then within a week, it was clear we were able to operate remotely without much interruption. And the team has done an amazing job, uh, under our you know, the leadership of our frontline managers in continuing to execute and move forward, um, you know, through the crisis. What are you thinking right now in terms of return? I mean, you said that your your company can operate without really skipping a beat with being all remote. Are you going to ask your employees to go back to an office? Are you going to stop renting out those offices? What What's going through your mind or have you made up your mind about that yet? Um, no, I mean, the first is we're being very transparent with the team and communicating everything we know at every step and even just some of my speculative thoughts. Um, the first one is that I'm, I do not plan to move the team immediately back to the office if there's a, if the um, stay-at-home orders are lifted in the places that we that we work and have offices. Um, my view is that uh, a lot of this is being hurt, you know, hurried too quickly. The data does not support um, moving uh, back to the offices quickly, and um, I would want to wait to see you know, six, eight, 12 weeks after the stay-at-home order is lifted, whether or not there's another spike in infections in the communities where we operate. That's one. The second is I would want to see that the infrastructure is really in place, the public health infrastructure, uh, to do the testing and contact tracing needed. Um, I do believe in all the jurisdictions we operate now that the hospitals are, are resourced sufficiently to manage sick patients. Um, I do not believe, and uh, you know, I have somewhat of an advantage in my that my wife is a clinician and public health professional, um, and that I know that we do not have the testing and tracing capabilities that are necessary to, uh, you know, hunt down the virus and keep uh, and isolate it from uh, the general population. And so, you know, and I think you know, leaders who are pretending like we have that capability are, are lying to the American people. Um, and so, I, I I can make my own evaluation. I don't. I'm not going to follow what a governor or a, the, the president of the CDC says, I can, I can find out on my, on my own if there's enough testing and tracing capabilities. And from there out, you know, that would be the place at which once testing and tracing capabilities are in place, once we see a decline in the numbers of infections in our jurisdictions for a prolonged period of time, and our hospitals are fully resourced, those are the kind of four elements that I'm looking for 
before. And then I think the final piece here is the engagement involvement from the team and, and hearing from them what they want to do. Um, and I think that's a very important part of um, getting people comfortable if we were to return to our offices. It's, it's great to hear, Tom. And, and it's interesting to me um, just how okay our society has been with just following orders recently. Um, and, and when you think about a crisis, when it's something so in your face like this virus, when you, when you get scared by something like this, someone threw out to me a comparison about climate change. And, you know, a lot of people are sensitive about this. You know, let's not talk about climate change during a time like this. But at the same time, it's also killing more people, at least we think projectively. Uh, what, are your ta- what are your thoughts on this in a comparison to, to climate change? And do you think uh, there will be a, a stronger consumer response following this pandemic? Well, I would say this is the first time we have seen a global um, crisis um, in a long time, uh, you know, of the sort that uh, that's really immediate for everybody. Um, that, and it is the sort of crisis that is predicted by the modeling around climate change. So it is analogous to the, uh, the implications that we will experience um, from climate change. We have definitely seen in the consumers that we talk with uh, uh, a connection between the crisis, the global crisis we're in now, and the, few, and the crisis we're experiencing related to climate change in their head. They see them as um, similar because there's, there's also there's both a crisis of uh, that's actually a public health crisis. But there's also a crisis of leadership. And there's a crisis of, um, you know, uh, leaders providing us a path forward. And so for many consumers, they conflate the same crisis we're seeing with the pandemic with the same one we see on climate change. It's not just a scientific crisis. It's also a leadership crisis. And the, um, so we definitely see some increased interest in our product as a result of um, heightened feelings about climate change and concern about climate change related to the pandemic. I should also note that while the scientists have been very polite <laughs> so far, the climate scientists, uh, one of the things that climate scientists have predicted for some time has been that uh, viruses and diseases would be more wide ranging uh, as a result of climate change, that there would be tropical diseases that would reach non-tropical areas, for example. Um, and so these sorts of, um, you know, uh, global pandemics are likely to become more prominent um, in a, a future with a warming planet. I think the uh, I'm just going to go off that point because I'm a big believer in that, too. And the, the point being is there's so much unknown and so much uncertainty, like a thing like this can happen. And there was an example of a climate change related disease in these goats in Kazakhstan. You can look it up, people. I, I don't, I'm going to mess up the term of this goat. But because of the temperature increase over time, the bacteria in these goats' mouths that was just had been with them and developed with them over centuries, as we all have viruses and bacteria in us because of the symbiotic relationship, they all dropped dead. Like thousands and thousands and thousands of these goats dropped dead within this range where the temperature had increased. So we're on a we're on a path uh, of, of of ice layers melting. Uh, we're on a path of uncertainty with where we're going, and we're at a point in time where people just can't comfortably ignore the external costs of industrialization. So it's an interesting 
interesting time to be in. To you, Tom, when you started this organization, a lot of people may have not taken you seriously. We kind of went over that. It's going to be a lot of risks. It's going to take a lot of leadership to kind of take, you know, carry this through. To you, Tom, what leadership is needed in today's day and age to sustain and survive the next wave? Wow, that's a big question. I mean, I think um, we need leadership that people can trust. Uh, that's a big one. And we have a deficit of trust in a lot of our political leadership. And, you know, in our company, we actually talk about trust as something that can be measured and defined. Um, we have, you know, there's a concept from some, you know, business school class of the trust equation, uh, you know, which is um, credibility plus reliability plus authenticity divided by perception of self-interest. And so we need leaders who are thinking about, like, how do I lower my perception of self-interest here? How do I improve my credibility? Are my ideas sound? How do I improve my reliability? Do I do what I say I'm going to do? And how do I improve my authenticity? Uh, can you believe what I'm saying? And so I think, you know, those sorts of uh, pieces of the trust equation, I think, are an important part of how we, um, you know, meet, find and create leaders for the future. Uh, leaders who can play that whole, um, you know, symphony of, um, of the components of trust and uh, build that with uh, the public and with their their team, their company, um, you know, et cetera. Tom, there's an acronym in there. Uh, I like that. I said it's divided by a P. Uh, really, really enjoy that. Tom, it's been a pleasure to speak with you today. You know, we've, we've covered a lot, everything from kind of how you started to from going from politics to here, the history of energy, what leadership is needed uh, to sustain this movement. Uh, so lastly, Tom, with all of that in mind, uh, let's bring this full circle. What is your definition of a real leader? A real leader sees where we need to go in the future and then is able to like rally people to get there. I mean, that's that's the that's the shortest uh, you know, way I think about it is having a vision in your head and then being able to build that trust with people to bring us forward towards that vision. Tom, appreciate your time coming back on the Real Leaders podcast, uh, a live podcast today. So appreciate everyone joining. I've got a few members down there. Say hello to Tom. Appreciate you all tuning in today. Uh, for Tom Matsy, I'm Kevin Hours asking to go out there, build trust, and always, folks, keep it real. Thanks, Tom. Appreciate you. Thank you. All right, folks, and thanks for tuning in to this uh, Real Leaders podcast today. If you want more, folks, you want to uh, watch more episodes, uh, check out our new YouTube channel at Real Leaders Magazine. We've got all these interviews up there, and this video interview will be up there as well. So if you want to share it with friends and family, if you're a visual learner, please check out our new YouTube channel. Uh, if you haven't yet subscribed to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, uh, Google Play, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, the podcast is on there. All, we're, all we ask you to do is simply go on there, uh, subscribe, and leave a review if you want to uh, continue this podcast and keep these interviews going. All right, everyone, that's it for me. Thanks again for tuning in and stay tuned for the next episode.